Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of sexual assault, incest, and gun violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to these topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed in the description. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I have two recommendations that I want to share, but also I'm just curious how you are. Oh, well, I recommend that you ask me how I am before you start jumping into recommendations because that's okay. kind of like, <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm getting through it. It's what the, almost the end of January. We, what is it? Yeah. We, we have a new president and we have a lot of new things happening. And yes. on top of that, I have a ton of new like changes and things and bunch of things I'm working on in my personal life and uh-huh. professional life. So I've been a little, overwhelmed lately um Uh but i feel like i'm with the support of my therapist my friends davy and viewers like you (laughs) (laughs) and the helena rubenstein foundation Uh (laughs) um and you of course and are are included big common friends i mean essentially you're like the main one (laughs) out here but of course but i um yeah, I think I'm getting through it, and I think it's helpful to to feel hopeful um, for the future. I think that's also helping me. I think it's definitely yeah. a big pressure yeah. releaser. Um, how about you? Yes. Yeah, same. It's so nice to, like, it's almost a weird disconnection from reality that I'm, that we're no longer living under the horror of the former president, and... Mm-hmm. I'm, I want to be clear that I do not think that the current administration is perfect by any means, but I don't have the same fear of, like, what is the news going to say today about the things that the government is doing? Um, which is not to say that I'm not critical and think they could be doing a lot better, but that that fear is definitely significantly less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just, I feel hopeful. It's nice to feel some hope again. Yeah, it's nice to see things happening that have been that have been promised. It's nice to see some movement very quickly. Um, how's the new puppy? Speaking of fighting about against things, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> he's good. He's uh he's getting the hang of certain things. It's really strange. You know how they say the like second child thing, all those like tropes <laughs> about, you know, first child, you're using cloth diapers and crying every time they make a sound. And second child, you're like hanging them from a pamper from the ceiling on the ceiling fan type. A hundred percent. Yes. That's definitely happening for both of us. But it's it's funny to see the things that worried and freaked me out about Neville when he was a baby uh-huh. um, that Davy was always saying, like, you need to calm down. This is fine. And now, like, we've definitely swapped places on a few of those things. It's oh, kind of yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, like I told you, the, the newest puppy in our household, I was like, go play with matches, whatever. Like, <laughs> as long as I get some more sleep, chew the sprinkler lines, whatever it is, I don't care. Just please, God, let me get some more sleep. So I fully relate to that second yeah. child behavior. Yeah. Um, great. Well, do you have any recommendations that you want to share? 
oh, you know what I just finished watching and it leaves on a cliffhanger, which is so frustrating. So spoiler <laughs> alert for those of you out there. I won't say what the cliffhanger is and stuff, but um, I, I may have mentioned this on the last episode, but I finished watching Murder on Middle Beach. Oh, oh I yeah, did yeah, mention yeah. this. I finished You it. did, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it's only four oh, yeah. episodes. I didn't realize I was so close to the end. And it's a cliffhanger, right? It's a cliffhanger. Um, mm. I I don't know if they're going to have a season two. There's a lot of like, but I hope they do because if they don't, I'm going to be following the, the story because it's really gripping. Yeah, it's very gripping. It's one of the ones that, you know, he's he's investigating it as he's filming it sort of. So, oh. you know, there's twists and turns and things are uncovered during that investigation. So it's not just like where you watch like Dateline or something like that, where they're presenting you data and evidence and they have a whole story it's the kind of thing that grows along with the mm, with the mm-hmm. series so yeah nice. i really liked it highly recommend for anyone who hasn't seen it yet but other than that nothing nothing big Cute. you got anything i just wanted to reiterate my recommendation for phoebe judges criminal the criminal podcast oh yeah it's so good and what i love about it is it's a true crime podcast that isn't night isn't a hundred percent terrifying like she approaches criminality and and uh she approaches the criminal justice system from a really interesting perspective that is like these are all aspects of things connected to crime and it's not just about you know murders or whatever and so there's one episode that was my absolute favorite where she's interviewing this woman who had this like 40 year career of being a courtroom sketch artist uh-huh. and oh, wow. and it was one of those things where it was just like she the woman that she was interviewing the sketch artist was so unbelievably charming to listen to and one of those stories where she talks about how she just really liked drawing and kind of was in a courtroom and thought it was such an interesting process and so it was like sketching it and she kind of like fibbed her way into getting an <laughs> official job as a, a courtroom sketch artist And then, and just really talks about how she spent 40 years and clearly had such a love for it and thought it was so fun and fascinating that I really loved her story because, you know, I feel like when people have dreams of creating art or being an artist or whatever like that, like the vision is, you know, I'm, I'm Van Gogh. (laughs) That's probably not what most people are aiming for, but you know, I'm like, I'm really, really famous. I'm selling paintings. I'm having gallery showings. Everybody knows who I am. Very traditional. Yeah. And what I loved about that was like, it. she got her dream. And, you know, maybe to other people, they're like, huh, like a courtroom artist, like that's not a very like big dream. But she clearly, it was so fulfilling to her. And so I, I just love that, you know, dreams, people achieving their dreams is like beautiful, regardless of how big it might seem to other people on the outside. And so... Um, I just want to recommend Phoebe Judge's Criminal for that reason, for almost for that episode alone. But there's also some really other good, interesting ones. I have that um, like bookmarked that that podcast, but I've actually never listened to an episode of it yet. Oh, okay. Um, if you're not sure if you're going to love it, I would say maybe start with that courtroom reporter person because it's very endearing. Mm. And the other I've I've talked about before, but just again, want to recommend the Let's Not Meet podcast. <laughs> it's so creepy and definitely has not caused me to uh, increase my home security. <laughs> <laughs> has it really? <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but 
it's it's just it's really good it's creepy people so again some of the stories are like okay that wasn't that interesting of a story but some of them are like really engrossing and there's been a couple where i like like screamed or shouted and like surprise of what the person like saw or encountered or whatever like there's uh, one where i love that some some like some woman her neighbor comes and is like hey i heard something scary will you just like come hang out with me which i would never say yes to that because i i don't ever talk to my neighbors <laughs> but uh you know she finally like gives in and like goes over and walks in and his apartment the walls are covered with dolls that have been nailed to the wall. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, and literally the neck and she like, see, he's like, Oh yeah, I'm, let me make you some tea. And right next to the tea kettle is like this big hammer. And, sh- and literally the, the storyteller is like, I really didn't see any red flags right away. And I was like, what? Excuse me. There's like a big hammer right next to this person who you've described as kind of like weird and creepy and his apartment is like covered with dolls nailed to the wall and you haven't seen any red flags. Anyway, so there's lots of stories like that. So if you like that kind of thing, I highly recommend it. I do. Anyway. And if any any listeners out there, if you have a collection of dolls, I would and you <sighs> have any of them nailed to the wall, I want an explanation. I told you about the house that I house sat for that had oh, a whole room yes. dedicated to the Barbies, right? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and it was like also their family room. So like their living room furniture where you would sit and watch TV. It was cases and cases and cases of Barbies just staring at you. Like, no, thank why? you. Why? No. <laughs> no shame. No, no judgment if that's your thing. It's just definitely not mine. No, thank you. All right. I have rambled long enough. Well, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here we are. Okay, so this is episode 19 of our show, episode (laughs) 18 of season one. (laughs) And the episode was called The Secret Sharers. I don't know. Could have done better with the episode title here. No real cool reference. But, oh, it does remind me. What was it called? Was it called The Secret? Not the book thing. (laughs) Um, The Secret of Nim? The rats? (laughs) No. Did you know my brother's cat is named after The Secret of Nim, though? No, yeah. I don't really remember the secret of an M, but I I know that it's scary when you're watching it as an adult. Oh, I haven't watched it as an as an adult. I really want to though. I, we should. I, I you know I say that, but I feel like somebody like I'm remembering a comment where somebody was like, "How did we let children watch this?" <laughs> That's a lot anyway, of things I watched. A back. <laughs> lot of things from the eighties. Oh, I remember what it was. It was called The Keepers on Netflix. Have you ever watched that? Oh no, I haven't. Oh, wait, that's, yes, I have. I absolutely have, and I've talked about it on this podcast, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the, the one, one where the nun disappears, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I read The Secret Sharers, it, it had, like, the Keeper's vibes to me. Oh, got it. Not as good. <laughs> no. Um, all right, so normally I try to, like, research all the cast and see if there's any guest stars. Um, and I definitely did that for this one because there are definitely some breakout <laughs> performances, oh, for boy. better or for worse. Um, for worse, but uh, <laughs> in here I only found one cast member who has something special about them. But I'll get to them and get them. Oh my <laughs> god, that sounds so rude. So dull, so nasty. And I so mean, rude. oh my god, that sounded so rude. Let me rephrase that. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> what I mean is something that stood out to me when I read their IMDb page. Okay, something recognizable or um, you know that I thought was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, we'll get to it when we get to her. Um, so we begin the episode and 
we're close to your prediction, which I'll get to in a second, but we didn't quite get it. So I am giving myself credit for it because um, I was really excited. I'll give you, well, well, I'll get to it. So we actually begin, instead of with two beat cops right away, we begin at a church fair. Um, and I have to say, have you ever been to one of those? No. Ugh, they used to do that in my town all the time. Like all the small churches or parishes would do in in each town would do like a feast or a festival or a carnival every year. My um, my grandma's church did like silent auctions periodically. Oh. Well, that doesn't sound nearly as fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> An auction? Isn't that where you just go buy stuff? You bid well, on stuff? Well, it was like a dinner and oh. you could bid on stuff. I don't know. I was like oh, seven. I guess so. When I think of auctions, I just think of like, you know, the guy on the stage. Oh, the paddle. This was a silent auction. So <laughs> yeah. people got to kind of like wander around and look at stuff. Like on Housewives. When they do uh, one of those auctions and they all go and bid on things and actually just eat dinner and socialize until they say who won. Yes. Okay. I guess that's a little more glamorous and fun. It's definitely more glamorous and than a fair. The ones okay. I've been to look very much like the one you saw on the show. It's like usually outdoor in the parking yeah. lot of a church and there's like rides. They're so fun. I miss those so much. Uh, and they're cheap, way cheaper than going to like, you know, the city's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so Which I've is... never been to a fair, by the way. <laughs> You've never been to the one in Santa Barbara mm. even? No, I've never been. Wow. You're, I'm shocked. I'm, I don't like crowds and mm. I don't want to go on hastily constructed rides <laughs> that like, <laughs> who knows if they're going to go like, you're going to go flying off into the freeway nearby. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyway. Well, you know, maybe maybe you'll get real brave in 2021. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Unlikely. Yeah. Well, the crowd at this fair is <laughs> yeah. having a great time. <laughs> okay. And they are, so it's a predominantly Latin crowd, and there's some sort of like loud dance music, sort of like salsa themed playing. So Law and Order is doing its own subtle way of trying to set the scene. Mm-hmm. And we have two men at a carnival game, and they're arguing over money that one that owes the other. Um, one is named Hector, we'll find out, and the other one is named Jose. He's the one who owes the money to Hector. Um, Jose looks like if Lin-Manuel Miranda was like on his way to be in a music video for like Boy George and the Culture Club, but it got jumped <laughs> on the way. <laughs> so it's no surprise that this guy owes the money, because he really just sounds like really shady even after he's being asked about the money he's like yeah 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 yeah. Um, yeah he's real cash about it though it's not doesn't seem like a big serious thing um then we have now we have two beat cops so i can see why you might give yourself some credit here because it's only like you know a couple Ten minutes seconds in, in 10 episode. seconds i don't know about that but you know maybe you can get a half point Ugh. <laughs> it's not quite Full credit. Same. I get full credit or nothing. <laughs> so we got the two. <laughs> well, nothing then. Um, <laughs> the two cops are at the fair. And I'm kind of unclear about why they're there, to be honest. Maybe they're just like hanging out. having. I fun guess, at the fair. but they're in uniform. I don't know. Maybe they were assigned to patrol it. I guess so. But they're there and they're just kind of chatting and having this like very canned, like dad like conversation about like women can't live with them, can't live without them kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of wasn't looking at the TV when the episode first started. And so I fully thought it was just Greedy and Logan because it would absolutely be one of their <laughs> oh, conversations. 100%. Except for they don't talk about bazingos or anything like that. Right. 
So they're on the way out of the fair, and uh, it's a good thing that they're there, I guess, because all of a sudden you hear about five gunshots or so, and they push through the crowd that's all running and screaming to see Jose is now on the ground, and he's dead. He's on his uh, stomach, and the cop asks the crowd very hastily if anyone's seen anything, and they get really frustrated that nobody wants to say anything. The crowd is staying quiet, which, okay, like, I get that narrative that we see often of like people don't want to say anything when they witness a crime and you know how hard it is possibly to you know get evidence when that happens Mm -hmm. but like we see the cops with the crowd outside run to the site so what's to say that any of them seen anything more than the cops did yeah yeah I'm, you know, I really wasn't clear at first that they were they were setting a scene of like everybody saw what happened, but nobody wants to talk about it. I thought everybody was like, I don't know, it's fucking dark out, and I'm at a fair, not staring at everybody right. and what they're doing. That's because you're a reasonable person, and that's what any <laughs> reasonable person would think. Thank you. <laughs> not not the cops though. They're like frustrated and like, oh, oh here we go. Um, I think that the approach they took and that what we often see the approach getting taken in these situations does nothing to get any information out of anybody anyway. Um, yeah. Oh, that rem- have you ever seen, I said I had no recommendations. I keep getting re- reminded of things. Um, I've definitely brought this up on the other podcast before we started doing this one, but it's more true crimey. Did you end up watching unbelievable on Netflix yet? No, that's the uh, show based on a few different, um, rape and sexual assault cases uh it stars tony collette and merritt weaver as these two detectives and they're in separate jurisdictions working on different cases and stuff and you know you have to watch the show it's really great did you, but did you say tony collette yeah and what's the show called unbelievable oh yeah it also you've starts reco- caitlin deaver um you've recommended this to me before yeah yeah i've i have no memory of this oh wow this is Ladies and gentlemen, and all uh, non-binary folks out there, you heard it here first. That I have no memory of this? That you don't listen to me? (laughs) Uh, Do you blame me, listeners? Do you blame me? Uh, I don't want an an answer to that. (laughs) Listeners, do not write in the answer. (laughs) Just DMN. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, no, it's really great, and the reason it reminded me of this is not Tony Collette versus Merritt Weaver in this in this example, but they show very different, separate versions of how uh, two different survivors of sexual assault cases, or yeah, I'll say that because I don't remember if they're both specifically rape. Um, it shows how one group of detectives approach it when they uh-huh. are questioning the survivor and how a different group approaches it. And it shows yeah. you like the very realistic different ways it could be done and how that ultimately like changes the outcome of not only the investigation but all the ramifications in the survivor's life mm-hmm. it's really good it's really hmm. you have to see it i i okay. can't recommend it. it's a little it's a and it's really well acted anyway okay definitely so nice. that's nice. sort of what this reminded me of like this is not the approach you take with people when you're wanting to get information to solve a serious crime Okay. Shaming them on the street for not saying anything. Right. When they're probably already scared of the cops. Yeah. So anyway, the opening credits roll. So you or I would have the opportunity to watch the entire miniseries on Netflix of Unbelievable (laughs) if we wanted to. (laughs) Just to catch up. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so instead I just, you know, transcribed the, you know, American Constitution 
and <laughs> now we're back and when we get back logan and grievy are on the scene and they are criticizing again the supposed witnesses to the crime with the cops that were there all saying you know nobody's seen anything no one wants to talk blah 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 yeah i mean anyway so they also say that they someone makes the comment like a gun going off in this neighborhood is just background music for them and yeah cute bef- yeah real i mean i don't I think it's like that's a sad statement because yes. perhaps that is true, but the right. way they are saying it is not to be sympathetic. No, yeah, no. they're just like, well, no, it's going to make our job hard. You know, people are used to this. Blah blah blah. Yeah, like another one. Yeah, throw, throw it on the pile. So they start to you know do their normal investigating here, and they find that one of the other cops on the scene finds drugs on the victim. He just flips the body over. He's wearing gloves at least, but he just flips the body over like nothing. (sighs) And um, a gun sort of like falls near the guy's waistband. And it's Jose. He's indeed dead. He's been shot in the back and like violently shot in the crotch, like overkill. It looks like in the in the in the the crotch area. Yeah. Um, And they pick up the gun and they use their favorite. Grievy uses his favorite, favorite, favorite tool. A pen. A pen or a pencil. (laughs) Yeah. I think they should switch. Like, let's try a chopstick. Um, something a long cigarette holder maybe a long <laughs> cigarette <laughs> a virginia slim what <laughs> one of those like uh hand grabby things for the top shelf oh yeah 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 <laughs> a long one of those like skinny bird speeds chapsticks <laughs> maybe one of maybe a pair of salad tongs Ooh. well they've used that they've used that for I evidence know. before <laughs> grievy uh logan didn't bring that this time because he was using it for um for salad thanks yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so they uh he picks up the gun with the, the pen and it hasn't been fired. Um, but they're like, great. It was just loose. We don't know what happened. So they bring back all their, they gather their evidence or whatever they have. They go back to Cragen in the, in the office. What's it called? The precinct precinct. Anyway, uh, station station. Duh. Okay. <laughs> they bring back what they have <laughs> to Cragen, which is very little. And they find out that Jose, who is, full name is her jose urbano which i'm not sure how i refer to him but jose urbano is evidently a long 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 standing uh quote-unquote criminal you know he's had a long rap sheet for weapons and drug related things no murder or anything like that but craigan suggests something pretty revolutionary to them he says you know maybe they should do some detective work imagine (laughs) he goes you know like an investigation (laughs) and i was like "Uh, yeah this could have been in episode one honestly (laughs) so they decide okay good idea and there's a few stops in between that turn up nothing um they end up at the parole office and they're talking to the caseworker in charge of urbano and he's got really nothing nice to say about him you know but they're obviously painting this character as someone who's very, very jaded. So I think that that comes off, comes across. Like, I think they're trying to depict, uh, similarly how they've done before, you know, the parole office is overworked. They have a million mm-hmm. people and, you know, it's a system that's not really supported. But he, oh, I also thought he looked like what Fonzie would be doing if it was, <laughs> if it was the 90s. Not Henry Winkler, but like the character Fonzie. <laughs> I okay yeah he was so terrible yeah he was a a real beyond curmudgeon but he was like 
the one thing he said that I did point out that I think should be the only thing we should pay attention to was he's asked in a roundabout way if Jose's most recent attempt to stay clean was sincere or he thought it was going to amount to anything. And his response to the detectives is, oh, yeah, all my cons have been rehabilitated by the system in like a really yeah. sarcastic way. And I'm not right. highlighting this because of like the word cons or the way he's talking through the whole thing, because it's just, yeah, the system is not rehabilitating people. <laughs> no, it's like particularly those struggling with addiction and even worse, of course, when there are people of color. So the system is obviously not working towards rehabilitation. Um, so I did think that was an important statement, but it's surrounded by a bunch of trash. So, <laughs> so they, uh, they move on from this guy, thank God. And they speak with the victim's sister who is perfectly styled to what you'd see like the average person in the East coast cold weather months to look like. So ignore yeah. what you see everybody else looking like in this episode and how they're depicted. And this is more realistic. I need to say something. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> It's been too long without me talking. I, <laughs> it has. <laughs> I um, I know we said let's save our critiques until the end of the show. I really, really just need to say this episode had hands down the worst acting of any Law and Order episode I've seen so far. Like it was painful to watch this episode, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. no exaggeration. Every single person's line and quality of acted sounded like that awful middle school monologue that you have to memorize where you're, you're, you know, 13 years old trying to be like, oh, I've lived a hard life and I'm a cigarette smoker. And, you know, it's just it's unbelievably painful to watch. And every scene like people like come from off scene, like to like encounter Logan and Grievy and they're the dialogue is so stupid. Like they clearly have not been having a conversation before because they walk up and they're like, but babe, I told you I didn't want to buy the watermelon. And it's like, (laughs) oh, Logan and Grievy, like what are the police doing here? Like it's just- It's the hands down worst. I, I I really do feel this way, and it, it will be reflected in my assessment at the end. The worst episode we have watched so far. Oh, it'll definitely be reflected in. I, I I'm sure you can already tell how I feel about this episode from how I'm talking about it. But yeah, yeah. it's definitely reflected. I th- I completely agree. I think it's so funny that you mention it now, though, because this this character specifically, the sister of the victim is probably the only person in the episode who I feel like is not overacting, is not screaming, is just a regular person. You probably don't even remember her because she was only in the scene. Right. But she just acts like a regular person. And it was just a <laughs> totally different vibe from how everyone else is portrayed. And I wonder yeah. if it's the acting or if it's the direction, to be honest. A little, yeah. I think it's a little yeah. bit of both, but I, Maybe, I think yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. So I'm glad. Yeah, totally agree. <laughs> Um, this is the one person who I will say this about that. I think that they look like a normal, actual, regular, accurate representation of a human being. (laughs) Yeah. So they're talking to her. And the only thing that comes from this conversation is she's able to confirm that, you know, Jose is, you know, a good family man, at least. And regardless of what else he was doing and, but he does, she does confirm that Jose and Hector were arguing that night over money, which we already Mm -hmm. know, but now they know. So next scene, they end up at a payphone eating hot dogs. (laughs) That really (laughs) took me back. I was like, payphones? (laughs) Uh, So they're over there and they're 
they're finding out that Hector's recently out of prison and they head over to his apartment with enough firepower really to like blow him out of the water. They were like really afraid of this guy. So yeah, that's how they're treating this guy, even though he gives up, he puts up no fight. Like, like they expected him to for whatever reason. I don't even know why they did, but they, uh, they take him to the station and he says he didn't do anything and he doesn't have anything to say. So Grievy doesn't care that they got nothing from him because through the course of the interview, he doesn't believe he did it anyway. They just don't see, doesn't seem to be adding up. So they follow up with a worker from the fair. Um, and he says that he saw a girl named Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you remember in maybe the early two thousands when there were all those rumors that Alicia Silverstone, like didn't take a bath and smelled really bad? No, you don't remember that. Oh God. I don't know why I know that, but there was, it was one of those, I think like early internet rumors that sort of circulated around like Avril Lavigne is replaced by a clone oh. kind of thing. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> we do know that she's, you know, very strongly uh, in favor of baby birding food to her child. You know that, right? Alicia Silverstone? Yes, she's a It's not a rumor. It's her it's her belief. Oh my god. Okay. okay. Wow. So there's that. I'll just leave that on the table. <laughs> um okay. So speaking of uh <laughs> well, let's just get here. So in the next scene, they go to talk to um this person we just got revealed to us this alicia that was hanging all over jose not silverstone and i want to talk about this character because i think she is the prime example her and one other character specifically are really prime examples of what you were talking about yeah i think she's going for like a marissa tomei my cousin Vinny kind of energy <laughs> but it's more like when there's like an offended mom holding up the line at kohl's because oh, like God. they won't take her expired coupons at the front Yes. That's what it's like. And for those of you out there who don't know what that looks like, just take like a lollipop away from a toddler and just see what happens. Yeah. It's it's a very similar situation. She is screaming instantly at the first it like moment of a question. She is like screaming at the top of her lungs and slamming her hand against the wall. It is so disproportionate of a reaction. (laughs) I, I don't even know what she's doing. It's so bizarre, but she's explosive from the moment that they get in there and they they make some kind of comment about cockroaches and they call him one and she says cockroaches should be dead and i'm like oh my god and she's by the way standing next to a priest because they're at yeah. the church i guess she works there it's alluded to and so um the young priest that's with her is named taurus or you know i don't know i don't think they mentioned his first name or i didn't pick it up but he echoes her sentiment also which they're shocked by so back at the station, Grieve is suggesting um, sending in a Puerto Rican cop instead in a really nasty way. And I would say that's not necessarily the worst idea if they would have sent someone to begin with. That Well, I was just going to say, like, it it probably would have uh, gone better, but you're suggesting it because you're you're implying that these people are the problem, not exactly. that you're the problem. <laughs> uh, you w- I was trying to figure out how to word this, and that is exactly it. So, exactly. Um, Ballistics on the gun come back. They show no crimes in the past year um, linked to the gun. And so they they show up at the office to ask the guy to dig a little bit deeper. And the guy goes, why? Um, I don't know. It's like your job. Um, Someone's dead. Um, I don't know. Maybe that. 
suggestion. <laughs> um, Greavy, again, is in his Dick Tracy comic book attire, and it takes all of like 10 seconds for the guy to find the gun <laughs> registered to an Anna Rivers. Right. Booyah! Thank God you tried again. <laughs> <laughs> so they head over to this nightclub um, that 55-year-old Anna Winters, I guess, is the manager of or owns. And this actress is the one who is the stand is the person who I'm going to mention. Um, she's played by Miriam Colon, who I had never heard of personally, but she's best known for playing Mama Montagna in Scarface. I've never seen Scarface. Ah, oh, that's a good. I mean, I don't know how it holds up, but it's a, it was a great movie when I've seen it. Yeah. Um, and I also mentioned her because when I looked her up for this, uh, it says that she is a like very prominent uh, Puerto Rican actress or figure in like media. She's done Broadway and different things like that. And former President Obama uh, awarded her a National Medal of, Medal of the Arts in 2014. Wow, good for her. Yeah, and the sighting on it was, Ms. Cologne has been a trailblazer in film, television, and theater, and helped open doors for generations of Hispanic actors. So I thought awesome. that was nice. Yeah. Yeah, and look at you in, in Law & Order. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And she was pretty good. She wasn't, like, explosive. She has a moment, though. She does have a moment yeah. later on that I'm, I'm not thrilled about either. She says that the that the gun in question was stolen. Um, but they put the pressure on her and they ask her if her granddaughter, Alicia happened to be there when it was stolen. And she looks pretty uncomfortable and kind of like shoes them out. And they go to Alicia's apartment instead. And they find out that no one's home because her sister, Lucy. So Alicia's sister, Lucy is in the hospital after an attack that happened about three days ago. So they're off to the hospital where the nurse who I love the nurse in the scene. I don't know if I remember her. She's, I don't know if you would consider her an over actor or not, but I really enjoyed her her okay. her manner with oh. the cops. <laughs> oh, I think I remember now. Yeah, when they get there to ask her about Lucy, she goes, "What's the hell? What the hell's the matter with you, cops?" And she I just do like remember her now. gives them the business. She's like, "This person's been in here. She's been beaten up, and you guys, whoever came three days ago, talked to her and just left her here." Yeah, and um, she explains to them that everyone in Lucy's life that she's spoken to about this wants her to just get patched up and move on, including the priest. And so they ask if the priest was named Taurus, and she goes, is this nursery school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I just think if she was on the squad, I think more stuff would be getting done. She's got the attitude for it. She does. No nonsense. None. So outside of Lucy's room, they question Alicia's boyfriend, who we're seeing for the first time. And his name is Nikki, and he says that he wasn't around, um, but they've heard differently. So now they have him at two different locations at the same time. And Alicia interrupts this little chat in the hallway, kind of rushes them off and brushes off the whole situation. And everything is looking fishy because no one wants to talk, and they're wondering, like, why didn't we hear about this assault? It seems linked. So they're putting the pieces together, and um, they go back to the hospital after visiting hours to talk to Lucy alone. She doesn't give them a lot. Um, she has like a, I think, a line and she just kind of shakes her head the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. And a different nurse at the hospital confirms that she overheard the priest tell Nikki something at like the soda machine. And it sounded kind of shady. It sounded like they were, you know, he was intending to go hurt somebody who had um, assaulted Lucy. And it seems like it was Jose. And so the volume and the tone in the next scene, oh my God, (laughs) they arrive at a church. Okay. And so the scene, I have to describe the way the scene started because when they panned down, I was not expecting what I saw. 
Yeah. So the scene starts and it's like the roof, like the high vaulted ceilings of this church. And the pastor sounds like he's giving a very emphatic, like passionate sermon, you know, like he's speaking to a really big crowd, Christmas mass style. And he's like telling them like this, like thing talking about the community and an uproar, maybe like what's happening, but they pan down and he's literally alone in the church with just Logan and Grevy right in front of him. And he is, (laughs) when I said the other girl was screaming, he is literally, if he was in a football field and he, and the football field was full of, full of, of spectators and You'd he had no microphone i would hear him <laughs> from the parking lot clearly yeah so i was <laughs> another the the other biggest example i think of the worst acting ever yeah and what he's saying is not anyway so um they get in there and they're they're arguing with him he's saying like how dare you accuse anybody in my you know church and he he makes a few statements about how someone has di- died in the church had a dead body in here, like within the last year, no one cared. And, you know, they mm-hmm. have a little face off and whatever. Yeah. They don't get much out of him. They just sort of have a big argument with him and they end up in later on, they end up getting a match on the bullet. So the bullet did come from that gun. So they feel like they have enough evidence now. So they bring it all to the DA's office and Robinette is having his doubts on the case, but he suggests maybe we can arrest Alicia to get her to roll on whoever the true killer ends up being, yeah. which they do. They do arrest her. Um, and that brings us to the courtroom side of things with uh, returning guest star of public defender Shambhala Green or Shambhala Green, mm-hmm. played by what, Lorraine Toussaint, I think her name is, right? Mm, I think that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Who I love. So this is the third time we're already seeing her in the first season only. She is, you know, the public defender that's usually uh, assigned to cases, especially when they seem like they could be racially motivated or targeting people who don't have the funds to afford a lawyer. She's like very much like the social justice war, like um, lawyer. Right. Seems yeah. like. So um, the good thing about her, she's not the type of public defender that gets assigned to people who, you know, who's lazy and isn't doing it. She like really fights the passionate fight for these people. So she is suggesting that her client is simply being targeted for being Puerto Rican. And Robinette says that this is just an example of them trying to care about crime within a marginalized community. Um, But she responds, quote, I never realized passions for minorities ran so high in this office. And Mm -hmm. I would uh, agree with her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But she catches wise to their plan pretty quickly in this meeting. And she knows that they don't have enough on her client and she realizes what they're she realizes what they're doing and she tells them that if they continue on with this they're going to end up feasting on a crow and she's off so Schiff tells both stone and robinette that they need more on the case if they want to take it because if they lose this one or if they go about it in the wrong way the racial tensions that are already really high will just continue to boil over mm-hmm. um and robinette decides he's going to take another approach in talking to anna the grandmother of alicia so he goes back to Alicia's grandmother at the nightclub um, before they open this time, just her and him. And he tells her what's going on honestly, and he speaks to her like a human being. Mm-hmm. And in this case, she decides to agree to tell the truth. Hmm. Weird. Yep. Weird yep. when you come at somebody accusing them and treating them like garbage, how different it could be when you just, you know, actually approach them like uh, a human with, being. Like a human being and <laughs> assume positive intent no matter what. Yeah. So there's next an explosive scene at the jail, which is when they go, she wants to tell the truth now. Anna wants her granddaughter to tell the truth. So she and um, 
Alicia's boyfriend, Nikki, are going to the jail to visit with um, Alicia. And I guess they're both going to try to tell her what they think is the best thing to do. Nikki's going to tell them to like keep quiet. And the grandmother is going to tell her, like, you should tell the truth. And what happens instead is this really explosive scene where um, they're all arguing. It's like a physical confrontation for some reason uh, over what to do. And in the end of it, the grandmother, Anna, shouts out that Jose raped Lucy and that Nikki killed him in revenge. So, yep. <laughs> uh, I'll talk about the scene later. So back okay. in the courtroom, Defender Green wants to represent both defendants in both separate cases, which doesn't fly with the judge. But he ends up throwing out Alicia's case anyway, because it, it really is only to get her to roll on somebody anyway. So he's like, doesn't matter. You can just represent Nikki since I'm throwing this case out. So there's this. The next scene is great. I liked the next scene only. <laughs> <laughs> in the whole episode it's just like scene filled with like sexual tension between uh shambhala green and detective St- or ada stone and it's got these great one-liners yeah. where like he says uh she says that they're gonna plead temporary insanity and he goes yours or your clients <laughs> <laughs> and she goes he just wanted to talk and he goes seven bullets what language is that <laughs> i love it but Stone, too good. yeah, too good. It's the only time we got these one-liners. There's one at the end, but Stone is unwilling to budge from Manslaughter One, and he says that. Oh, this line too. He says, "The commandment says thou shalt not kill. It does not say thou shalt not kill nice people." Mm. Okay, about this statement, I'm. I'd say okay, but why don't we think the same thing on every case? Like, why True. don't the commandment doesn't say thou shalt not kill people unless you're a cop? Or mm-hmm. unless the target is different from you. Um, mm-hmm. And also, why does it matter what the commandment says? Right. At all. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the, I don't know, law. The law, yeah. Yeah. So Schiff argues with Stone. Um, you know, Schiff's the boss, and he's probably sitting in a chair, because that's all he does. Um, Schiff argues with Stone to just get the kid to do some sort of plea deal and do a couple of years and get this off their plate, because it's, it doesn't look like there's any way to spin this politically or, you know, for, to the media, to everybody else, where it's, it's not going to result in a bad situation. Right. Um, and then they find out in the next scene that they can't do this. Be- they cannot do this, rather, because... Uh, Green has given up the case. She's referred them to another lawyer from Texas named Chet Burton. Um, and when we meet him, he is essentially right off the set of a spaghetti Western. Um, <laughs> but he just popped into a suit real quick. Yeah. And he's a hootin' tootin' <laughs> something or other. <laughs> I, when I, before, it, this is the first time that I researched the crime before I read the episode or uh-huh. watched the episode. And... Every, everything kept referencing, like, this character is based on these four, like, Southern lawyers who are, like, and all I could think of was, like, am I about to watch somebody basically be Foghorn Leghorn on <laughs> Law and & Order? And it wasn't far off, to be honest. It is. I, I put down Yosemite Sam. It's totally Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> but we're in the same world. It is Merry Melodies to the max. It is so bizarre. Yes. But hey, he's a, he's a bombastic character for sure. At least good, he brings the good um, word, Britney Spears. <laughs> so yeah, this guy is totally foghorn like horn without the feathers. And he's got he says he's got a perfect winning legal record. He's not worried about the case. And 
he's ready to take Stone down. Stone looks a little intimidated for the first time, probably, and he uh, he continues talking with this guy. They have a little back and forth, and the um, defense attorney is basically saying he's going to put forth that Nikki was just being influenced by his culture, quote unquote, yeah. and that he was just doing the right thing in his mind. So, so the next day in court, he is fully looking like Crocodile Dundee this time. He's got the suit off, and he's got like the. <laughs> The bolero or the yeah. Uh, yeah bolero tie is that what I it's think called? that's what it's called the little buccaneer thing yeah and uh, yeah <laughs> I don't, don't think it's that's what it's called I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what a buccaneer is <sighs> so the next day um, we're in court he's doing this whole little crocodile these shtick talking walking dressing and during the trial we see Anna and Alicia both on the stand testifying for the prosecution telling the truth, telling what happened, what we already heard. And Burton, when he gets to cross-examine people, he is always pulling like these tricks in the courtroom to sway the jury. He essentially brings up things that he knows are not going to be allowed um, and just, you know, stone objects. And he's often um, granted the, you know, sustained by the, by the judge, judge who's getting pissed. Yeah. But the information is still getting out there to the jury because he's saying it in the first place. Yeah. And... Um, Urban, so when they get, oh, and then throughout him doing this, he gets to essentially paint the um, victim of the crime as a drug dealing criminal. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to not be admissible in court, but now it's out there and the prosecution knows it. So in between, they meet in chambers, uh, Stone and Chet, and they discuss the deal again. <laughs> But they can't agree on one, um, and Burton, Chet Burton, is confident and keeps reminding him that where he's from, everyone's got a gun in one hand, a can of beer in the other. And this is basically, okay. yeah, this is basically nothing to him. He's done this a million times, and in Texas, most kids would get a medal for killing Jose. Yeah. <sighs> so the defense then tries to unsuccessfully um, rule the priest's testimony inadmissible, but the uh, judge says, no, you know, it's admissible. No big deal. And so <laughs> on the stand, he tells, or, you know, Taurus, priest, what do you call that? I don't want to say pastor. Father. Father. They, oh, that's, wow, brainless. Thank you. <laughs> so on the stand, uh, Father Taurus, uh, in his testimony, he says that Nikki knew Jose had raped Lucy and he wanted revenge and they talked about it and he was angry. But then when um, Burton redirects, he he gets him to basically explain what the crime of rape looks like in the Catholic Church. And um, he describes it as something that not only shames the woman, but it shames the family and everyone in the life is affected. Um, and then Davey, my partner, for those of you who don't know, was watching it with me. He said something I thought was really right on, and I hadn't thought of it, but he was like, that is a lot of pressure to put on a woman's body. Uh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, honestly, because I, when I heard that, I was like, you know, of course, like a crime, you know, affects more people than just the victim and, you know, or the survivor. And, you know, of course, when someone dies, the family is hurt. When someone is traumatically assaulted or raped, you know, the family feels bad, but what an incredible amount of pressure and um, unnecessary and unfair to be putting <laughs> yes. on someone who's going through this traumatic experience. She's the one yes. who's affected. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we move on and we are back in the courtroom again. Um, and he is up to, 
the defense attorney is up to his old tricks again. He's doing this every time someone gets on the stand. He's doing the same thing. And it's frustrating because the judge is getting pissed and like condemning him and is basically saying like one more time and you're out of here. But he's never out of there. Just keeps happening. Yep. So Logan eventually gets on the stand and we know he's a gem. And he's talking about the gun and um, the ballistics of it and all the matching and whatnot. But we know that the gun is a point of contention since it was found falling off of his body, you know. So Burton does this whole thing again, and he gets the testimony of Logan to look however he wants it. And in the hallway, some uh, legal aide approaches Stone as they're like waiting to, um, as him and Robinette are talking about what's going on. And the legal aide says, the Spanish lover boy shooting has an update from Grevy. Um, is that really how we should be describing <sighs> this case? No. But it's just says it right off his tongue like nothing. The Spanish lover boy shooting. So they found an addict. This is the big the big break. Logan and Grevy have found an addict in jail who was picked up and he wants a deal and he's willing to testify that Nikki is a drug dealer as well. Um, and they think that this is great because if this gets in court, everyone will look at Nikki as a drug dealer and they'll believe more that he was, you know, not justified in his murder of Jose. And the actor who's playing this guy, who we only see in this one scene, spoiler alert, but he is actually a fusion of Boy George and John Leguizamo. <laughs> like, there's no yes. other description. <laughs> no. Um, the judge decides he's not going to allow this in court because it's too prejudicial. So it was a totally pointless scene, total waste of time. Back in court, Burton gets uh, Hector on the stand. And remember, Hector is the man we saw at the very beginning of the episode who wanted the money from Jose in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't really seen him in a long time. So he's on the stand and he testifies that he has witnessed himself Jose shooting someone in the past and that person was a drug dealer and then right afterwards the jury takes three days in deliberation um, to return with a verdict and they find the defendant not guilty so you know it's they play that dramatic music in the background that violin stringy music and outside Robinette and Stone are walking past the jury foreperson who's being mobbed by the press to explain like what the you know what happened, um, I thought it was weird that the <laughs> main like prosecution attorneys can walk out of the courtroom and not also be mobbed with questions, right? But they just walk right past like nobody cares about them. They want to talk to the lady who sat in the jury, yeah. Um, and they're sort of talking back and forth, and you know, oh well, you know, we lost. And I think Robinette says something about them being flim flammed, or Stone <laughs> mentions it, something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Stone says, quote, that the jury knew they were being flim-flammed and they still acquitted him. And that's frightening. Yeah. Which is, you know, him saying, like, they knew he did it. They knew he killed the guy. And they allowed him to be unjustly put in, like, get away with it because they thought the other guy was a bad guy. Yeah. And they knew it was happening and they still let it happen. Which is kind of frightening, to be honest. Yes. And that is the end of the episode. I think that uh, when I was reading about it, it was the only only the second episode where they haven't won. I th- it seems like it. I don't. What was the first one? Was it the the court case with the um Ugh. where they had to they lost the first one and they went back to get the big mobster? Maybe that could have been it. Yeah. So I will let you do your uh, <laughs> your true crime before I before I talk about how I feel this oh boy episode okay. represented the community. So here's the thing about this episode. When you go on the Law and Order wiki, there's no indication of what true crime inspired this episode. Uh-huh. But 
upon doing some digging, I found, I, I don't know, I can't remember if it was an IMDb page or a Rotten Tomatoes page that was like, oh, this crime or this episode is based off of this crime. And so for whatever reason, I was doing my research before I watched the episode. So I like spent several hours doing my research for on the crime and then watched the episode. And I was like, this crime has absolutely nothing to do with this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Other, so, so you're going to get a, a true crime that is by the barest, thinnest connections related to this episode. So here we go. Great. <laughs> so, so my my sources for this were the Law and Order Wiki and Wikipedia and that IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes page, um, the Spokane Daily Chronicle, an article by Laura Richardson, a Star News article from January of 1982, a March 1983 article from the Texas Monthly, a Fox News article that was a forty year reflect forty year later reflection on this crime. A New York Times article by Manny Fernandez, a KTBS article, which is a subsidiary of ABC, and a Vice News video. Hmm, okay. So this episode is based on the Dangerfield Church shooting. Hmm. So I think the I think we've already extent or hit the ex, uh, extent of the connection. There was a shooting, and <laughs> the church it was, was involved. A church was involved. Okay. So this event took place in June of 1980 in the town of Dangerfield, Texas, which is in the northeast corner of Texas. And it's a really, really small town. In 1980, it had a population of 3,000. And like, from what I can tell, it sort of had like a little downtown area and everything around was sort of farmland. And so when I say like 3,000, it's like 3,000, but it seems kind of like spread out. Okay. Based because it's farmland. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And... This crime involves a man named Alvin Lee King III. Mm. Imagine being the third Alvin. I mean, the no only Simon, Alvin, no I, Theodore. I prefer Simon. Simon's my favorite of the three. My, me too. Right? Same. Always. <laughs> and best. Not Brittany. Brittany was the main chipette, right? Who was yeah, the... Brittany's the Alvin counterpart. Jeanette is the Simon Jeanette, counterpart. Thank you. Who That's I right. love. And let's not forget Eleanor and Theodore, because I feel like we not. can't we can't just ignore them. No. <laughs> so Alvin Lee King was born in Freer, F-R-E-E-R, Texas in 1934, and grew up in a section of Corpus Christi known as the Cut. I was unable to find exactly what that meant. But hey, if you are a listener from Corpus Christi or the area and know what the cut is, let us know. I'd love to hear. Yeah. (laughs) So apparently there wasn't a lot of like wildlife protection or like wildlife residential laws in Corpus Christi back in 1934 because Alvin Lee King III, his childhood home apparently had a lion, a cougar, and a baboon (sighs) in it, according to one of these articles, which is very strange. Do they know Carol Baskin? (laughs) I was literally thinking the same thing. I was like, oh, are these like big cat people? Anyway, so he was an only child, uh, graduated high school in 1953, majored in education at North Texas State, and in 1956 married married a woman named Gretchen Gaines, who was the daughter of a quote-unquote newspaper man. I don't know if that means he owned the newspaper or what, but... Maybe delivered. Uh, I was wondering that, but that seems, you know, anyway. So 
He returned to Corpus Christi after they got married and taught math at uh, Ray High School until 1961. And by all accounts, he was this really smart guy who won a National Science Foundation grant that funded his master's program in math. And he was even admitted to medical school, but he ended up not succeeding in that or, or something went wrong. He ended up not completing it. So he and his wife, Gretchen, had their second child, Cynthia, and after having her, they moved to Longview, Texas, where he was a systems engineer for IBM and was kind of known as the neighborhood jerk who would yell at neighborhood kids, which, (laughs) let's be honest, is actually pretty relatable. Yeah, that's not a big deal. (laughs) His wife, Cynthia, I think I called her Gretchen a minute ago. Oh, I'm sorry. I confused it. His daughter is Cynthia. His wife is Gretchen. So his wife, Gretchen commuted to the town of Dangerfield to teach at their local junior high. And by 1966, Alvin had taken a job at Dangerfield High teaching math. According to some of the articles that I read, he was a really strict, no-nonsense teacher with, quote, a hair temper trigger. Uh, A hair trigger temper. Mm. Let's try that again. (laughs) King was also an agnostic, which this is, Dangerfield particularly was a highly religious area of Texas, and so he didn't really get along very well with the locals because he wasn't a member of one of the, like, two or three churches in the town. And by the summer of 1972, he had stopped teaching at Dangerfield High because apparently he and the school district didn't get along very well. In 1977, the King family's house burned to the ground and they lost everything. Uh. And despite the fact that they were agnostic and not apparently getting along very well with the local religious residents, the local First Baptist Church donated them a bunch of clothing and personal items to get them back on their feet. And with their fire insurance settlement, I know, right? And with their fire insurance settlement, they bought a 117-acre farm in a neighboring county. Okay, so they they re they rebuilt they re they, they redefined their their mission. Yes, here is where things get really yucky. Mm-hmm. In 1979, um, his then 21 old daughter Cynthia called her brother Al, who was the uh, I guess he would have been Al the fourth, uh, <laughs> to tell her brother that their father had been raping her for years <sighs> since she was a child. And with her brother's support, they contacted the local district attorney and filed charges against their father. And there are articles that go into the specifics of the assault, but it's really horrific, so I'm not going to retell it here. But Mm -hmm. uh, suffice it to say, the abuse started really early, and King, Alvin King III, um, actually, like, made his son part of the cover story to hide hide the abuse. So, like, his—her brother— when he was a child was kind of like lied to and manipulated by his father in ways to kind of like cover up the daughter, the abuse of the daughter. Really awful. So both Cynthia and her brother, Al, uh, told the DA that they thought that they were afraid of their father and that he should be considered dangerous. Okay. So all that's happening, right? Mm hmm. Cut to Sunday, June 22nd of 1980. It's in, we're here in Dangerfield, Texas, and we're in the middle of a heat wave that is killing local livestock and crops because it's been so hot and so dry. At 11.20 a.m., inside the First Baptist Church, remember the church that donated him a bunch of clothes and, and personal items, um, it's a church that holds about 350 uh, pretty regular parishioners, and they were inside singing the song, 
more about Jesus would I know, which my note to myself says, I do not know the lyrics to that song. Oh, uh, it's one of my do you know favorites. It? No, I actually okay. don't know that one. <laughs> you, you, I know your father is a, a pastor or a preacher. Did you go to church as a kid? Oh, I, yeah. I was okay. going to say religiously, <laughs> but <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> I was going to, okay, great. So they're all singing and suddenly they hear a bang at the back of the church and a couple of people look back and they see a man in a steel helmet and a flak jacket, which is like a form of body armor, hunting boots, blue jeans, and thick horn-rimmed glasses. And it was Alvin Lee King III who had kicked open the doors to the church. He was armed with a scoped semi-automatic XM16E1 <laughs> type oh derivative God. rifle, which when the minute I read that, I was like, isn't that what Grimes and Elon Musk named uh. their baby? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> but apparently it's it's a code for an M16 rifle. Okay. And he had that and an M1 carbine with a bayonet attached to it, which is, you know, the long blade at the end of the, the rifle. Okay. Both of these are semi-automatic weapons um, that were... Standard issue for the army in like World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. I was gonna say that sounds so old, like old timey. Yeah, yeah. So both of them are semi-automatic, which means you know you have to keep pulling the trigger, but it automatically reloads, etc. In addition to these two guns, uh, to these two rifles, semi-automatic semi rifles, he also had two semi-automatic revolvers with him. So people are singing, they they hear this bang at the back of the church, they look back, and there's this man in a steel helmet and body armor with two rifles, and he shouts, this is war, and opens fire in the church. One of the quotes from Judy Pullen, who was a survivor, said, I heard a pop, 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 like firecrackers, and I looked around, and it was a man with a gun, dressed like a soldier, really, and he was shooting. Oh, my God. Um, her husband, I believe Gary Pullen, said that, you know, people were scrambling around the sanctuary realizing there's no place to go because I guess there was really just that one door in yeah. and out of the church. And so he said, you know, we were just trapped, helpless. That is so terrifying. Terrifying. So King's first victim was seven-year-old Gina uh... Linham, who he shot in the back of the head followed by a man named Gene Gandy, who was shot in the heart. After he kills these two people, a man named Jack Dean, like, kind of leaps over the pew to grab at the bayonet that King was holding and shooting with, and his next shot, I, I, I couldn't quite gather whether um, this was due to, like, the... I couldn't tell if it was due to, like, the recoil, but the article said that the next shot that King fired shattered Dean's hand and forearm. So I think he might've like grabbed it and the force of the recoil shattered his arm. Oh my God. So it was then that song director, Dan Gilmore, who was at the microphone shouted for everyone to get down. But it's one of those events that I don't, I don't know you can fully capture through like the storytelling, but people described basically being like, what do you mean get down what do you mean they're shooting like it's it's so out of the realm of reality that people are sort of like confused and surprised is what's going on some people said they they thought they heard fireworks when they were hearing the the gunshots i mean it's... how how would you be able to prepare yourself 
yeah. to know how you'd react in that situation. Like yeah. that's happened so fast, I'm sure. Oh yeah, totally. So a horrifying, <laughs> this is all horrifying, but an even more horrifying side note is that this was a a small town in a community that was kind of spread out because it was farmlands. And so the Sunday service was also broadcast on live radio locally. So everybody who was tuning in to the church service suddenly heard just like gunfire and screaming. Oh my gosh. So Chris Hall, who was one of the ushers at the back of the church charged at King and slammed him against the wall, which caused King to lose his grip on the two rifles. And they both kind of like tumbled to the floor into the little like vestibule outside the main chamber of the, I I said chamber, I don't know, main hall of the church. So kind of like the little entry room that's, I think, pretty common on churches. Yeah, like a foyer-y welcoming area. Yeah. So... Hall, he and Hall kind of like tumble to the ground, and it's then that Hall realizes that King still has more weapons, and so he's like, fuck, and like dives and takes cover. So at this point, King only has his two automatic or semi-automatic uh, revolvers, and so another man named J.Y., uh, who is known as Red McDaniel, basically bear-hugged King and, like, wrestled him through the front door of the church and, like, shattered the door of the church with their bodies, like, throwing him and and King outside of the church. And, unfortunately, King managed to stick one of his revolvers into Red McDaniel's stomach and shot him four (sighs) times, killing him pretty much instantly. As King tried to rise from the ground from kind of being wrestled out by McDaniel, a man named Kenneth Truitt dove for him hit his shoulder and kind of like rolled off of him and King shot Truett with his revolver and Truett later died of his wounds in a nearby hospital. No. Then real estate broker Larry Cohen picked up one of the fallen rifles and aimed it at King. And they basically had kind of like a a stare down moment uh, where King had, you know, the, the handgun and Cohen had this rifle aimed at him. And so King then suddenly drops his revolver and runs And before I continue the story, I just want to read a quote from the Spokane article that said, The toll of this incident could have been much higher, officials said, but for three men's heroics, Chris Hall, Kenneth Truitt, and Red McDaniel, who dove at the shooter. The article, um, Judy Paulin in uh, the article said, Without the heroism of these men, we were all sitting ducks. So King had dropped his gun and ran across the road, the gun he was holding, and ran across the road to a nearby fire station where he shot himself in the head. But he survived and was placed in custody to await trial on five counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. And I'm sorry, why was it not 350 counts of attempted murder when... It's a church full of 350 people. And you walked in and said, this is war. This is war. Yeah. So after the shooting, like police are arriving, they go to King's residence to investigate and found his wife, Gretchen, tied to a chair. She stated that her husband had tied her up at 9 a.m. that morning and had never given her any indication of what he planned to do. It was just like, it was so creepy. One of the articles I read, it was basically like, we woke up, we had breakfast, everything was normal, and then he tied me to a chair and went out the door. So, you might be asking yourself, why was King targeting the First Baptist Church? 
Apparently, his impending trial for rape and incest had caused him to reach out to several members of the church asking them to testify on his behalf as character witnesses in his trial, and they had all refused. So in total, King killed five members of the congregation. Uh, Gina Linham, as I said, she was seven. Jane Gandy was 50. Red McDaniel was 49, Thelma Richardson, 78, and Kenneth Truitt, 49. In the Vice News video that you can find on YouTube, um, Larry Linham, the father of Gina, this is awful. So, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. This is not from the Vice News article. This is from the uh, KTBS article. So they wrote that Larry Linham had dropped off his daughter, Gina, the seven-year-old, at the First Baptist Church before heading down the street to the Methodist Church to lead the choir practice. So he had dropped his daughter off and then left. Mm-hmm. Gina, the article writes, was so lovely. She was a daddy's girl, and that made it tough, said Linham. He recalls her asking to go with him to, to choir practice, but he didn't want her to miss Sunday school. Oh. He, he later authored a book called The Day the Angels Cried, which describes the shooting, the trial, how he overcame the tragedy, and how he learned forgiveness. In the Vice News video that you can, you can find on YouTube, um, the interviewer is speaking with Larry Linham at the memorial that stands outside of the church. And he asked Linham if he comes here. Sorry, I'm getting emotional about this. I he, asked Linham, he asked Linham if he comes here and... Linham replies, no, I haven't been here in years. The significance of that event is with me. It goes where I go. And so I'm just going to wrap up this story with a quote from Chris Hall, who was the first man to charge King and is kind of credited with saving a lot of people's lives, um, who survived. And in the Texas Monthly article, he was quoted as saying, um, during the interview, points to kind of the, the nature around him and says, those trees out there, they're pretty. I notice things a little more, even how nice the rainy days can be. I don't stop to smell all the roses, but I don't think I'll ever take life for granted again. And that is the story of the Dangerfield church shooting. And I I very regretfully wish I could have found more information on the five people who lost their lives because I did want to tell some of their story. I couldn't find much of anything at all besides some of those statements about Larry Linham and his daughter, Gina. Yeah. Um, so. It's always hard to. Um, like I said, this crime had absolutely nothing to do with the Law and oh Order episode other than it was shooting at a church. Um, and the other thing I thought was interesting is that we have two back-to-back episodes about sort of gun violence and... Um, you know, we talked about the the sort of need for talking about the the victims of these crimes. And one of the other things that I just want to say that I, I hope we do with this podcast that I, I hope we've been doing and I hope we continue to do is, you know, I was able to talk a lot more about Alvin King in this story. But in no way do I want to do one of those true crime podcasts where we're like glamorizing. Oh, right. Just to be clear, like the... The reason, one of the reasons I want to be talking about stories like this is so that we can be having conversations about things like gun control and in other episodes more talking about sort of like patterns of inequality that shape the conditions of of crime and oppression and things like that. So um, 
I I talked about him primarily because that's the information that is accessible. I wish I could have said more about them. Um, If you happen to be somebody who knows any more about that crime or any of the, particularly the stories of any of the people who, um, who lost their lives, please uh, write it in. I will be happy to share that in a future episode if we're able to locate any more of that information. Yeah, Yeah, I second that. And that goes for all of all of the cases that we've done. If anyone out there has a personal connection to it in any way, um, we'd love to hear from you. And if, if you have, a personal connection to any of these in any way do you just think that you know we could have done better or we maybe misrepresented something got something wrong yeah please please let us know so i know it had nothing to do with the episode but i think i made my feelings very very clear <laughs> the, <laughs> earlier on when i said worst episode we've seen so far so i am going to give this episode an absolute f for both watchability and I guess how they dealt with the subject, like, I really, I have to say, I really didn't like the, the way that they portrayed, like, the Latinx community mm-hmm. in this episode. This episode really felt like a caricature of yes. the Latinx community is 100%. kind of actually um, how I, how I would say that. So I'm going to give him an F for both of those. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you probably... I'm 100% with you on the representation of people in the episode and the crime. Um, yeah. The total F and then watchability, I'd give it like, I'll give it a D minus because while the okay. acting was terrible, it was entertainingly terrible. Um, <laughs> so I'll give it a yeah, D it, minus. I will say it it bordered on being so bad that it was funny. It um, was. It was comical. Yeah. <laughs> at parts. In, um, in how terrible it was. Yeah. Yeah. And just to like echo my F. Um, <laughs> yeah um just to echo on that what i what i was talking about when i was talking about the episode is exactly what you were just describing the way in which the latinx community and specifically the puerto rican community is is depicted in this episode well this has been a roller coaster of an episode i mean tell you wow (laughs) and not that not the like hastily put together actually it is the hastily put together (laughs) roller coaster at the fair (laughs) (laughs) oh goodness well, thank you all for listening. If you like our podcast and you're you've listened to all our episodes, it would be awesome if you would write us a review. It would be even more awesome if you would share our uh, podcast with somebody else and tell them to listen to it uh, because that really helps out. Um, you know, helps people find us and helps us maybe in the future get advertising and and things like that that will help us maybe earn some income for all the work that we're doing on the podcast. So that would be great if you could do that. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe yourself. And, uh, oh yeah, and find us on social media, Ripped Headlines Pod, uh, no, Ripped Headlines on Instagram and Twitter and RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. Yes, find us. I think we have a Facebook page as well. So interact with us on that. And uh, I guess that's it until next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.